1: Introducing our new series of Justice, where we will be exploring what impact the physical environment can have on those who have experienced trauma. With me, prison philanthropist and founder of One Small Thing, Edwina Grosvenor. In this week's episode, we explore an example of trauma informed design from further afield. I speak to Samantha Donnelly, an architect and lecturer at the University of Technology in Sydney, Australia. Samantha focuses on how trauma-informed design can benefit the experiences of women, children and staff in domestic abuse refuges. We discuss her work and how trauma-informed design can positively impact the lives of those who find themselves in vulnerable situations. My name's Samantha Donnelly
2: and I am currently a lecturer in the University of Technology in Sydney in Australia. I'm also a PhD candidate and I'm doing a thesis that focuses on women's refuges in New South Wales and Australia and how trauma-informed design can benefit the experiences of women and children and staff um, in refuge. And it's a it's a really interesting topic for an architect to be addressing because it's never been kind of looked at from a built environment perspective so I'm really interested in how trauma-informed design and buildings and, and built environments can impact the lives of people who are in really kind of vulnerable situations.
1: Yeah, and it's nice to talk to someone else who is also working in in the same area and to know that this sort of trauma-informed, gender-responsive side of things that I think a lot of people tell me is a bit jargony. It's not just us in England, but actually it's happening internationally, right? Not just in Australia, but in America and different places around the world. But could you give me some idea, first of all, of women in Australia that are affected by the justice system? And obviously within that we have homelessness, we have domestic abuse, it's all quite one in the same often. What's the picture over in in Oz? In terms of domestic and
2: family violence, in Australia, we get, you know, women with really long, complex histories of abuse. Uh, Many of the women are carers. They have children or they're caring for parents. Many women here are in precarious employment. So they might be, you know, working on casual rates or you know, dealing with low wage type jobs. So they have financial burdens that they, they need to consider. And the cost of living and the cost of renting a house here is kind of astronomical at the moment. So they're, they're often forced into this situation where they need to choose between homelessness or staying in a violent partnership, which, which is just not a humane choice to have to make, particularly when you're the carer of children. And I think Some of the issues are that they've got children who have very different needs to them because they're children and they're they're dealing with different issues to their mother. In Australia, domestic and family violence and homelessness are addressed by the same government department. So it's kind of captured under the same umbrella, which isn't ideal because, you know, domestic and family violence needs are are gendered. They're they're women's needs and they need to be addressed in a, a different way to general homelessness in a lot of situations. So there's this kind of real, really messy area where often um, homelessness services will be dealing with both, you know, alcohol and, and addiction issues and uh, women who are coming in with children escaping violence. And, and often those needs, could, you know, really conflict.
1: Right. So as it stands, generally speaking, if a woman was fleeing her home because of domestic abuse and say she's got two children in tow, she would probably end up in a homeless shelter is that what you're saying
2: some of them are specific to domestic and family violence but then there are some that are generalist and because there's not enough of anything um you need to kind of really be careful about where you place as a service they need to be really clear for where they place women and children who are who are vulnerable
1: so how many refuges roughly are there
2: i only know in um, new south wales there are at the moment, 84, um, and that's been pretty stable over the last five or so years since I started the PhD. So there's, we talk about kind of creating more refuges, but it's it's very difficult to create more refuges when there's no funding and, and very little real estate available. And actually,
1: it's one of those things, isn't it? It's like, yes, we need more refuges, but we also need less violence, yeah. <laughs> which is slightly harder. <laughs> Harder to, um, harder to control, isn't it, um, for, for obvious reasons. But So can you tell me how you segued into this sort of line of work because you're an architect? Yes. And then tell me how you sort of went from architecture into sort of realising that, you know, the gender-specific trauma-informed thing was, was so important. As an
2: architect in practice, I was working in a firm that was doing a lot of welfare and um, not-for-profit work So we were working with a lot of organisations that provided crisis accommodation. And a friend rang me and asked me to come and work on a women's refuge in the northern suburbs of Sydney. And they just specifically wanted to to get rid of the kitchen because people were fighting in the kitchen and and they thought it would be much better if all of the units were made into self-contained flats so that women and families could kind of work with their families on their own. And it was... It was like ten years ago, so they were a really forward-thinking organisation at that stage, and I'd never dealt with women's refuges before. And it, it suddenly, suddenly, after years of trying to find my place as an architect and never feeling very comfortable with, you know, rich, you know, working with rich people or working with big organisations with lots of money. Suddenly, this problem of the women's refuge kind of totally made sense. It was this great puzzle with lots of really strong-minded women trying to work to create safe spaces but also advocate for you know less violence. So it was doing more than just providing a safe space, it was it was trying to change the way that we behave as humans and it, it just kind of made a whole lot more sense being an architect doing that.
1: I often hear that the kitchen is the Flashpoints in sort of many places where lots of people are living together and and I guess food is really a motive isn't it for lots of people and and so so you you went in to address the problem of the kitchen and and where did it go from there and and how did you progress to you know where you are now teaching students about about this stuff?
2: While I was practicing I was always teaching it's always been really interesting to me to be able to kind of work in a practice and and deal with real projects but also bring those into studios and and teach students about, you know, real clients and and dealing with lived experience. So I think once I'd started to work in women's refuges, a lot more of my design studios were really focused on gendered issues and women's housing and older women's um, issues and it kind of became a really key um, topic to and to work with students and the students respond really well to to those kind of issues because they're living with them. You know, they're living often at home with mums who are dealing with situations like this. And, you know, their grandma might be dealing with homelessness just in terms of being able to try and work out where to go next.
1: How interesting. And what would you say are the sort of key aspects? You know, again, going back into the, you know, the trauma is one thing. The gender is another thing. So taking a building, for example, what are the sort of key elements that you think need to be there in order to make sure, you know, you're delivering a, a building that hits all the, the right notes?
2: Yeah, it's a really interesting design problem when you start to think about the, the healing qualities of a space. And I think for me, there's there's three key elements The first one's safety. The second one, I think, is dignity. And the third one is an ability to retreat, you know, having having that ability to retreat into your own private space. So safety involves things like um, physical safety, you know, just being able to be sheltered by a, a physical building or an environment. Then there's psychological safety, which you can achieve by kind of thinking about view lines, providing lots of natural light, Access to landscape can can create um, really good psychological safety, and then there's also cultural safety. I think there's a lot of services don't provide acknowledgement or acceptance and inclusion of different cultures, and I think that was one of the big problems in in the first refuge I worked in, is the kind of clash between different cultures, and I think we're a lot better now at addressing you know intergenerational trauma and and issues to do with culture
1: can you give me an example of how someone might go about even just thinking about cultural safety and what that is because i think to a lot of people it would be like yeah that makes sense but how would you do that in reality i've seen
2: a lot of places deal with it by you know having landscape that might belong to different cultures so you have landscapes that might Uh, look Asian in in nature so that women if they have a lot of Asian women coming into the refuge having you know bamboo in the garden suddenly makes it feel a bit more like home. Um, Artwork on the wall so having different types of artwork and not just kind of this colonialist artwork that we often have (laughs) in our heritage homes. Another thing that I found really interesting is Making the living areas really flexible so that if you're from a culture who likes to sit on the floor and eat dinner, for example, it's really easy to move things around so that you can continue with your kind of cultural needs and your, your rituals and routines.
1: Absolutely. And I guess, you know, space for people to be able to pray. Wash their mm. feet, you know, to be able to do that, not in the bathroom, as it were, or the a sort of room where you might not want to be washing your feet, and sort of, I suppose, trying to make that slightly more dignified than often mm. we're than we do it at the moment. And and would you also say, I mean, it's less architectural, but you know, cooking different foods in the week and cultural events, and obviously not just celebrating Easter, Christmas, you know, the types of things that we might fall back on.
2: Yeah, I think a lot of the refugees now are, are acknowledging that in a much more kind of balanced way. So, and it makes it much easier when you've got your own unit to be able to continue with your own cultural cooking practices, but they have, often have communal cooking and eating spaces where they might have particular nights of the week where they'll cook a, a different cultures meal and, and they'll all come together. So there, there's a lot more acceptance now, which I think helps.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And what about sort of light and space and colour? I think that
2: the light and the space create a sense of connection to the landscape, which is particularly important for Aboriginal women, having access to, to outside views and knowing where you are on country. It helps them regulate and, and kind of come when they're in a state of high trauma, Being able to regulate through natural light and ventilation and being able to control those things I think is really important. I think some refuges have really interesting window and uh, window covering so they might have a a block-out blind and a shear blind and and shutters so that the women can actually choose how much light they admit. So there's there's things about choice and, and being able to modify your space according to to your personal needs is important.
1: We have built an alternative to custody called Hope Street in Southampton, but it's actually an alternative to custody that sits over the whole county of Hampshire, um, or will do once we have our housing pathway in place. But it's so interesting what you're saying. So much is resounding with the, you know, we fought not to have built-in furniture and things like that we said no 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 we need to be able to move beds in and out we need to be able to move cops in and out we also need to be able to replace furniture we've got manifestations on the windows so there's a certain amount of light that can come through but the manifestations are of leaves that represent the tree that's in the middle of the courtyard garden in the middle the front of the building is sort of semi-open to the public but the back is very Private for the women and the children where they'll reside. So yeah, I'm pleased that uh, some of the things are making sense, and it's a lot of what we're doing. And they're translating. Yeah, exactly. Bit of a relief. What are the other elements that you think are sort of key, particularly to the speaking to the trauma side of life, and what a woman might be feeling when she sort of comes in, and architecturally the real big things that you'd need to hit to make sure that you were building, a trauma-informed building?
2: Uh, there's key moments, I think, within the physical building that really need to be curated in a in a particular way. Like, for instance, the the entry is often the point where a woman will decide whether or not she can stay in a refuge or whether she wants to stay. And if it's a welcoming, kind of warm, home-like environment, it will give a, a sense of you know, time and space to recover. Whereas if it's a more institutional type environment, that can ha- often have a really negative effect and she'll decide that, you know, the refuge space isn't isn't where she wants to be at that moment. So to, it's really important to make sure that that entry sequence is carefully thought through so that both she and the children get a sense of kind of inclusion and, and kind of suddenly feeling like they can change their situation which is kind of tricky because you're designing for an unknown. So women coming in are coming in with all sorts of different stories. So these entry points need to be flexible but also need to be safe in a way that... It's not It's not the same kind of safety that you get in a normal house, for example.
1: Yeah, it's just reminded me of a trip I did to America quite a few years ago when I was scoping out some international things that I could look at uh, in order to shape my thinking for Hope Street. And so um, a colleague of mine sort of said, come and visit X, Y and Z, which I did. And um, <laughs> you've just reminded me that I went to this shelter and we turn up and the first thing that I see not only was the door falling off its hinges, but there was a bouncer outside, and the bouncer was a man and i was I was like, "Oh, this surely can't be the women's refuge because this is i mean even I was sort of really taken aback and we went in and it was dirty, and there were just lots of men sitting around on chairs I seem to remember, and I said, "What are all these men doing here?" and they were security, but they weren't but they were <laughs> just sort of standing around or sitting around sort of you know, it was very odd and I sort of thought, well, that's not, uh, not going to be something I'm going to take back to England with me. <laughs> I think we could probably do a little better than that. Yeah.
2: And I've heard too that in the first days when women get to refuge, a lot of them just want to sleep. Like they're so exhausted from the, from the experience that they've had leaving home that those first few days are really precious in terms of being able to completely shut down and sleep and recalibrate. And so the rooms need to provide that kind of total calm. And it'll be the acoustics that, you know, if you can get the acoustics right and being able to completely shut the room to, to make that calm space, I think that creates a much more successful experience for a lot of women too. And having the ability to choose when they want to socialise, so not feeling like they're constantly having to interact with people.
1: Exactly. And and realising that actually some women are nocturnal, right? Mm. They sleep through the day, they're up through the night. Um, I think there's something else with acoustics, certainly that we realised. Um, we had this sort of acoustics very much thought of whilst building Hope Street, but the, the privacy that women need when they're in group as well. And if they're talking about things, how close is that room to where the staff is sitting? You know, it's, it's really key that what goes on in that room stays in that room if the women want it to stay in that room. And equally when staff are having difficult conversations or private confidential conversations about women or children, that other people, you know, aren't hearing that as well.
2: And a lot of women have young babies too. So if you if they're all living together and then we've got babies who wake at different times of the night, there's these kind of strange cycles that happen. <laughs>
1: Colour was another thing that very much featured in our discussions and we um, had big consultations with women throughout the design process for Hope Street. And Hope Street has ended up being very sort of, you know, natural, calming sort of, but, you know, like green colours and nothing bright and leery and mad. Is that something that came up in your research?
2: Yeah, I find it interesting people tend to talk about colour first because that's what they feel safe talking about and they think that colour has this amazing psychological effect on people, but I think you're right. It's it's more that it's more about creating a sense of calm. And for me I think it's it's maybe less about the colour and the saturation and, and more about the lack of pattern and visual noise. So you can still have colour and you can still have richness in the space, but if you can kind of manage to calm it down by maybe only having one or two colours and and balance of kind of whites and and neutral colours, I think it's good. There's a danger of making it too kind of clinical if you you don't have any colour. So there's this kind of fine balance in between.
1: I remember many of the conversations with the women, you know, they'd say, because a lot, you know, smells and colours and certain things are triggering, right? And I think what we're trying to do is design out, you can't design out all the triggers for every person, um, but, you know, you can do a large amount quite easily, I think. And some women would say, oh no, not that green, because that's the green that we have in the healthcare unit in prison. Mm. And so it was really interesting, you know, just these sort of little things that would come out. I remember discussions about beds, you know, in, in my life and in a privileged life, it's sort of double bed and the children can sit on it. So we had conversations about that and the women were like, what are you talking about? Just a bed is nice. Like it doesn't need to be big. And many of them have had their children removed off them. So they don't want a big bed that they feel lonely in. Actually, they prefer a smaller bed. And and then some of us saying, oh, I think those rooms are too small. And some women saying, no, a small room is better. We feel safer in a small room. So all the things that maybe those of us who are sat on the more privileged side of the fence and be that um, the architect, interior designer anyone that might have been in the design meetings it was so interesting being able to be quiet actually let them talk and go oh wow it's quite different the priorities that you know these women have compared to what we have which is why Mm. it's so important I guess to do those consultations right Mm.
2: and even little things like lighting you get people who just assume that everybody likes this type of lighting but you can really change the whole ambience of the room by calming the lighting down. And then it becomes not even about the colours or the, you know, the size of things because you can can manage to change the way a person perceives it by making it really soft lighting, for example.
1: And what about, you said something earlier about lines of sight, which, again, I think speaks to the physical safety of the building and staff, maybe keeping their eyes out for abusive partners that obviously turn up. I'm sure that happens in Australia. It certainly happens in England. And I think it probably happens all over the world. You know, a lot of these um, men predominantly will want to find their partner or ex-partner or their children. But I think there's the other thing, isn't there, of having lines of sight for the women themselves just to look out into a garden is also quite nice. But can you speak to that a bit in a sort of around the safety and from what what you're studying has has said and found out.
2: Yeah, I I find this a really interesting topic because it's about creating kind of view corridors, particularly for mothers with children, and you've got that kind of hypervigilance when they first come in where the children need to know where their mum is and the mum needs to know where the children are but they need to start to become more independent. And just having a line of sight to a playground, for example, can can make it a really easy space to live in so that you can continue to do something while the children are playing without having to be out in the playground kind of watching over them all the time. And the building makes that possible, like having windows in good places or having a doorway that opens up easily from a kitchen onto a play space. Again, it's a balance between not feeling like you're under surveillance as opposed to just being able to check out and see that things are okay. I think staff really get missed in a lot of these design conversations too because their work is huge in in managing, like you were saying, the periphery of the building but also managing people inside the spaces and making sure that things are okay. And so their view corridors, often they're in these tiny offices with lots of people and lots of things going on. And they don't have the privilege of the views outside because they're in the least nice space in the whole in the whole centre.
1: It's such an important point. You know, again, in the building of Hope Street, you know, there was a lot of conversation about the women and children, obviously. But I very much came to Hope Street with also equally how do we look after our staff? You know, staff retention in these jobs is incredibly important and them doing a very difficult job in the sector. And at least if we build a place where people want to come and work that's a really good head start and also if we build a place where when they've had a difficult day the building itself isn't triggering to them because we need to remember that staff have trauma histories that's often why they are in that line of work in the first place
2: and that's one of the trauma-informed principles too is that that the staff are kind of in this kind of equal relationship where they need to be as cared for as as the residents, and I think that's nice because the residents really look to the staff for that support and and they need to be in a place of wellbeing as well.
1: Yeah, what we see in the prisons um over here in England is many prisons because they're under-resourced, understaffed, underpaid, and often the buildings are not in a good state. And in order to cost cut in a lot of prisons, they got rid of the officer's mess. So I remember quite a few years ago to go into a prison, I arrived in the car park and there were loads of officers just sat in the boots of their cars, like just sitting there chatting to each other. And I was like, well, that's odd. (laughs) Why aren't they in the prison? Um, And what are they doing hanging around in the car park? And so I went in and they were like, basically it turned out the officer's mess had been shut. So they had nowhere to go for lunch. And can you imagine the stress of working in a prison? It was a youth offenders institute as well. So stress levels like really, really, really high and so i remember thinking my god if i've ever built anything you know the ability for staff to be able to retreat just have their lunch in peace and to be able to at least get half an hour of quiet mm. and i think it's
2: a lot about not listening too that people don't ask the users of the building what they need they just make these assumptions so Part of my issue is that there's lots of designers out there but the ones who are experts in healing spaces are the ones who work with lived experience and they seek out lived experience and they work with service providers to design. They don't impose their kind of assumed spaces on anybody else and they also go back and evaluate the spaces to make sure that they're working. So there's this really long relationship that builds up between a good designer who's kind of interested in, in trauma and the way that we can build to support that, as opposed to somebody who's just going in to build, you know, a great fancy space that might not do the job.
1: Yeah. Obviously, um, if we go on to talk a little bit about the barriers, which isn't as positive, but obviously it costs, doesn't it, to design something around someone's needs in a more sort of specific way. Um, I presume you have the same problem as we do in England, in Australia, which is everyone sort of goes, oh yes, great, great, great. But are governments particularly interested in, in this space, I wonder?
2: Well, they are sometimes, and sometimes it's very short periods of time and there's an injection of funding and then everybody scrabbles to get the funding and there's this huge competition.
1: Okay, so that's exactly the same as England.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and then you have to spend it in a very short period of time. So you almost have to have the project ready to go. And we we call it shovel-ready projects here. I don't know if it's the same in England. So you have to have a project ready for the shovel to hit the ground and start straight
1: away. Right. And often the cost of getting shovel ready, all the work that goes on beforehand is is incredibly expensive just to get to that point, isn't it? The designing of the building doesn't happen for free. In New South Wales, obviously, Australia is absolutely enormous. Our country is tiny in comparison. So let's just talk about New South Wales, which is sort of where you are. How many or what percentage of the refuges or buildings would you say have inc- managed to incorporate at least an element of the trauma-informed, gender-specific side of life?
2: Oh, that's a good question. I think, I think most services now are dealing with some form of person-centred or trauma-informed practice model, but often the buildings aren't trauma-informed. So we're slowly changing the landscape and. I think there was a whole injection of funding in the last two years where the government said, we'll give you money if you can come up with innovative solutions to provide new refuges. Um, But I fear that that's a one-off and that we won't see that funding again for another, I don't know, 10, 20, 40 years maybe.
1: Interesting. It's
2: not expensive. That's the other thing. If you build a trauma-informed space, it doesn't have to be any more expensive than a not-trauma-informed space. So I think... There's so many things that we could teach
1: them. Totally. And if you build from scratch, like we were able to do with Hope Street, we did the site selection, we built from scratch, we designed what we wanted. And obviously, the hope is that then you build a building that is fit for purpose. It's environmentally friendly. There's longevity to the building. Um, and actually, then your running costs are lower because you're not you know, trying to heat an old, leaky building that was built in the 70s. Exactly.
2: What I love about Hope Street too is that it's replicable. Like you can you can um, you can change the scale of it. You can add more modules. It's a really fantastic model for lots of different sites, and I think you've proved that it works really well.
1: Yeah, thank you. I mean, I, we we very much hope so. Um, hope Street, for those who don't know, was opened on the twenty seventh of June this year. So women are slowly coming in from courts, either on remand on a community sentence, or they come to us um, from prison if they're eligible for early release and homeless. Um, and the idea is that, yes, you could take the Hope Street model out of Hampshire, which is a county in England, and put that model across any other county in England. So it's replicable, scalable. I mean, obviously we've got a lot to prove and it's early days. You know, we're, we're basically just um, a toddler at the minute finding our feet.
2: And it's all about, you know, providing good housing that can solve so many problems. The whole housing first model has proven that. And I I find it really frustrating that we haven't kind of embraced that housing first idea in all sorts of different areas.
1: A final question. Something we incorporated to Hope Street is um, a coffee shop that's open to the public. We haven't quite opened yet, but I think thinking about the narrative around the building is really important. So I was very keen that the stigma that would surround these women wasn't there. So it's like, what is the story of Hope Street? I want Hope Street, I would like the narrative to be, oh, there's great coffee. Oh, why don't we meet and have a slice of cake? You know, there's there's some excitement and there's some involvement of the community being able to invite the community in. So people are mixing in the way that they should because these women should not be in prison. They should be in the community and they are in the community. So therefore, let's park the rest of the justice story to one side and let these people get on with their lives. So, yeah, we're hoping that by bringing the community in, it changes the narrative of the building and people aren't like, oh, that's where the bad women are, you know? Yeah, it's so tricky.
2: And I I ask a lot of the service providers about the fact that refuges need to be anonymous and to be hidden in plain sight. There's this conflict where the refuge is housing a whole bunch of women who have been isolated for sometimes years on end. And this idea that they're still isolated and they're now having to hide in a house in suburbia, I think is really bizarre. You know, that idea of having a cafe could completely change the way that they interact with the local community and the way they regain confidence.
1: Yeah, and this comes back to the safety aspect, right? It's kind of like when people say, well, isn't that rather dangerous? Because what if a a man turns up, say, and he wants to come for a cup of coffee and then cause trouble once he's in there? And I say, well, I'm sure that will happen. They will turn up whether there's a coffee shop or not. And what I think is, if it's busier, and we can talk again maybe in a a few months' time and I might be sort of um, eating my words, but I think there's a safety in the group.
2: Some of those cafes that promote safety then attract other people who come to be safe there too. So you end up creating a community that kind of looks after each other.
1: Exactly. And also, of course, our staff will be trained. We won't necessarily know what particular perpetrators look like. We won't get called by the prison if a man gets let out of prison. So... Staff have to be really vigilant. So we make sure that the staff that are working in the cafe know that part of their job, if they're sat on reception is not to be looking down at the desk the whole time. It's like we need eyes out the front. Who's coming in? Why are they coming in? And then what happens if someone throws a mug across the cafe or starts, you know, starts causing trouble. So yeah, but that but that's an interesting, I suppose, deviation from the refuge model, which is, anonymous property and hiding, which I understand why that has to happen.
2: Yeah, Australia's been trialling domestic and violent, family violence hubs where women can, so it's not a refuge, but women can go there for information or to to find support before they need refuge. And, and it's a kind of way of trying to prevent violence rather than deal with the crisis once it happens. And I think that's a nice, I mean, Hope Street's providing that on the same site. So there's a a cafe, which can also provide support and information and, and things like that.
1: Yeah, exactly. Well, listen, it's been so interesting talking to you. Thank you. And I could talk forever on the gender specific trauma informed side of life. And it's just really nice to know that there's other people in other countries also, you know, working on the same thing. So thank you so much for your time.
2: My pleasure. It's been great to kind of look at how Hope Street's been built and, and see the development over the last couple of years.
1: When you're travelling, give us a call, come to England, and we'll take you round. Looking forward to it. Thank you. Thanks to everyone who has listened to this series of our Justice podcast on healing spaces. We have heard some great examples of trauma-informed design and spaces that can really help those affected by the justice system to feel safe enough to address any past trauma they may have experienced. We have also discussed the difficult contradictions of trying to create spaces for healing within a justice system that has been designed to do the exact opposite. What the guests on this series have all agreed on is that more support in the community is needed, such as women's centres and safe housing, and the importance of having accessible alternatives to prison across the entire country.
2: Links relevant to this episode can be found in the pod notes below. If you enjoyed listening, we would love it if you would subscribe. Also rate, review and best of all, share this episode. Justice is produced for one small thing by the London Podcast Company.